Hello, welcome to Braveful, a podcast with and for achieving women. I'm your host, Amy Zeigert. I'm so excited to share with you stories of women who are brave and gutsy. This show is a weekly view into the hearts and minds of what has enabled these fabulous ladies to take a leap and go forward with bold ideas. So join me in an opportunity to listen, learn, and lean in, Braveful style. Hello, hello. Today, I am going to be sharing with you a conversation with Carly Fain. Carly Fain is a celebrity business and boundary coach, author, speaker, and founder of the Boundary Academy, all from her quiet little small town home. Gotta love technology. She shows driven career motivated people how to leverage nourishment as the professional growth strategy that will make them leaders in their career without sacrificing their bodies or spirits again. I have to tell you, this is a long podcast, but when you connect with someone who just offers so much enlightenment, you have to embrace it. You have to go with it. You you have to just admire it. And I had this opportunity when I spoke with Carly, and I hope that you see the connection that I see with her. Her boundary setting ideas are earth shattering. They focus on parts that didn't make sense to me until I spoke with her. I always thought about boundaries as creating a wall against people. And it's not, it's about taking care of yourself. So please listen. Um, And I thank you so much for being here. It means the world to me and enjoy. Would love your feedback. So have a great day and enjoy this great, braveful conversation with Carly Fain. First off, thank you so much. I'm just thrilled to get to meet you. And um, Ginny spoke so many great things about you. So um, I'm like, oh, yeah, I love I love meeting inspiring women. And your story is so unique. I mean, who grows up, you know, living the life of a yogi, for God's sakes, you know? Yeah, and not realizing that it wasn't unusual. I really, till I was in college. And then I was like, Oh, okay. So the way I grew up was not the way everybody grew up. Like, okay, this is different. So did you actually live in India? No. So the ashram was in the United States. Okay. Okay. It was actually founded by folks from India, but it was here in the United States. So on U.S. soil, but in a totally different world. Yeah. Coming from the Midwest, I'm pretty sure yoga didn't get introduced till 1980 to the Midwest. Yeah. And it might've been by these folks because that was their goal. Their goal was we want to make yoga mainstream. We want to take it out of the woo-woo and make it approachable for other people. And, And so it was funny because it was in a very, still to this day, I mean, blue collar, hardworking town of, you know, and then there's this little ashram in the middle of it, pretty isolated from the rest of the town. So it was in a really traditional area. And yet there was this other thing going on. Wow. So how, how has that framed you now? I mean, for me, yoga is such a centering, um, you know, and, and the world is so off center. So for you to be able to grow up, I would think in a centered way, that's got to be different once you got outside of that bubble. And how are you able to apply it then into real life? I'd love to know. Yoga at its core, right? Like forget the poses. That's just one type of yoga. But like yoga at its core, the word means union, right? The word means connection. It's so that could be when, when people do it on the yoga mat, they think of like, oh, okay, I'm unifying my body and my breath, you know, or I'm unifying, you know, my thoughts with where I actually am. I'm being present in the moment, right? But the grander way of looking at it is that it's about connection. And so I think it allows me to live in 
a space of both, which is really handy right about now. So I don't have to be extremist in any direction. I don't have to be all in obsessed with work and totally checked out from what's happening in politics. Or I don't have to be, you know, all about family and forgetting about work. It's like, where's that middle where I can find center, where there's a where there's room for all of it. And so that's that's been huge. I grew up in that way. I just wanted to be a normal person. I just wanted to be part of the mainstream. Really, it's only in the last, I don't know, seven, eight years where I that clicked for me. That I didn't have to like be some yogi or be corporate, that I could be both. Right. So I don't want to make it sound like there was some master plan that I got at nine years old and I had like a trajectory. It's like in retrospect, I can paint that picture. But the truth is I was struggling like everybody else. And it's just starting to click a little bit, like 3% is clicking and that's, and that's helpful. So in essence, you're bringing your authentic self then now because that's clicked. Yeah. There's that sense of authenticity that you can bring to your, your client base, which I think is amazing because I, I actually, I attended. So after this was going to happen, I did your boundaries. And, and so you, you talk about being connected and, you know, how do you connect and still have boundaries without offending people? You know, it's like, there's this got to be authentic. You got to be human. You got to be empathetic. You got to this, that, you know, how do you bring it all together? Because for me, I always said, put people on the moon. Here's my foundation. Here's my house. Some people can come to the fence or to the mailbox. Right. Some people are let on the porch or in the door. And then there are those of you that drive me ballistic. You're going to the moon and maybe I'll bring you down every now and then. But for right now, you're going to stay in the moon. Right. But your boundaries, the bridge, the visual and, and the part that was so powerful to me is that you're like, the wall has already been built. So... Tell me, how did you come up with that? What was your thought process that made you visualize the wall, the bridge? Because that was an aha moment for me because I have a lot of walls built up where I need to build a bridge. So how do you do that? It's kind of coming back to this idea of center because I'm the same way. And I think boundaries were really scary and hard for me. One of the reasons being that I didn't want to feel like I was pushing people away or that I had to armor up or I had to be a jerk in order to reinforce what I need. And so that made it feel really hard to have boundaries because in my mind, I'm thinking either I have to be a total pushover or I have to be this extremely guarded, no nonsense person. And I'm playful by nature. And like that firmness doesn't always feel good. Right. And so I think it was this recognition again of coming back to center of, so what if I'm not being an extremist here and boundaries? I think when I have this conversation with women and we're in the process right now of we're going to launch in March the Boundary Academy, which we've been working on for a couple of years. And so we have this council of boundary makers, this assembly of 14 women that I meet with every week who have been doing the course this month of January and just test running it. So yesterday we had one of our meetings and we were in conversation around this idea that there's a misconception that boundaries are what we articulate to other people. Boundaries are a contract between ourselves and ourselves. Like they are a contract between ourself and our own values. So the focus isn't on the external articulation. The focus is on what we need and want and what gives us life, right? So like the focus of our boundaries is actually what we value. There will be times when we need to outwardly articulate that, but it's not about other people don't actually push back on our boundaries. We push back on our own boundaries. Like we let them come back in. So I think some of the the misconception there is that a boundary is between us and somebody else. A boundary is a bridge between ourselves and our values. 
And then we may articulate that into the world. And it's so funny because that's the number one question, Amy, that we get is number one, right off the bat, when I'm in a group with a bunch of women who might be new to talking about boundaries, the first question is, but Carly, what if people think I'm the B word if I speak up? And there's so much information there about where we as women are coming from that our biggest fear is, will they not like me anymore? Like what's going on there, right? That our, our biggest fear isn't, what if I don't get to live the life I want? What if I never get to have the career I want or I never go for the love I want or I never leave this loveless relationship? That's not the big fear. The big fear is, what if they don't think I'm nice enough? Like, wow, right? Like there's a deeper conversation to be had there that that's the number one question we get. Well, and so turn that around. When do we in life decide that we don't need that approval or that like? I mean, and it probably started back when we were in grade school, high school, got to hang out with the popular kids, whatever. And it's interesting, you know, I've, I've done, I'm just starting this podcast journey. And that is the question that comes up all the time is when do I, when did I, or when do I stop caring about what others think of me? And I get to be who I need to be to bring my whole self to the universe. Right. And I think, and I think the gateway, I mean, one thought I'm having around what that gateway might be, Amy, is that when we abandon ourselves, when we abandon our values through unconscious or conscious decisions, usually a myriad of really small decisions, right? And, and I love what you said at the very beginning as you were referencing, oh, we've got to do this and we've got to do that. There's all these things we've got to do. Speak up, but don't talk too loud. Don't rock the boat. Dress nice, but don't dress too sexy. But it's, it's we abandon our values, then we rely more on the external validation. As we brush up closer, as we reform relationship with our value, the need for external response naturally dials down. So we don't have to focus on how do I not care about what they think? Once we care about what we care about, that happens automatically. So again, it's like, it's still not about anybody else's response, which we don't have control over, but we do have some influence over our response, right? And our focal point. So when we get closer to ourselves, when we come back home and we walk that bridge back to what we value, though caring about what other people think happens naturally. That's the symptom. It's not, it's not the issue. So how do you help people get there? Is there a magic potion? I wish. You know, it feels magical as like all these women, like even yesterday's call, we had this one, we have a Fortune 500 CEO who's on the council, right? And she had this big boundary, aha, and she's sharing this like, and it sounds magical, but it's really method. It's actually really mundane. The first thing we do is we give women a safe space to talk freely. Like that's the first thing is I don't think we as women get enough room to digest how we actually think and feel in real time. We kind of go from one thing to the next to the next, especially us high achievers, which is pretty much the only folks I work with, you know, it's like, and so the first thing we do is we give them space to actually feel the way they feel and to say the thing they want to say. Once you do that, my real job, it's just to facilitate. Like women are so wise. They don't really need my advice at all. They just need room to hear their own wisdom. And then they're good to go. They'll inspire each other. I can just be like this guide on the side who's just kind of bringing us into the same room, giving a little framework. And then they take the conversation with they know, Women know what they want. They just don't get space to consider it. So we give them the safe space to consider it. Wow. Women know what they want. They just don't have the space to consider it. So that kind of goes back to creating your own tribe 
the importance of having your own tribe, which I have several tribes. You know, I have women that are part of a Bible study. I have women that I, you know, my, my core work women, you know, now I've developed a group of podcasting women. I think that's huge, but you've been able to create a space that allows high achievers to come and share their thoughts, et cetera. And then what do you do with those thoughts? I mean, how do you then expand upon that? The beauty is like, I I don't have to do anything with their thoughts. Like what happens when they return to their own clarity about what they want and what they value is they are entirely re-energized again. They're inspired again. And I got to tell you half the time, maybe more, and this is anecdotal. I don't have any data behind this. But anecdotally, I would say they go back to what they loved doing when they were seven years old. Like whatever it was, they loved hanging out with their friends. Well, then they do these social things, you know, where they create community. They loved painting. They start painting again. Like they love being the boss. Ever since they were seven, they love telling people what to do. So they go back into their leadership role. Like whatever it is, it's always been there. We just go dormant. There's a poet, Rowan White, whose work is really beautiful. And she has this phrase, and I'm paraphrasing it, but she talks about like as women, they they tried to bury us, but they didn't know we were seeds. And I think there's something there, right? It's like we've been buried under all this cultural expectation or familial expectation, our own expectation, but it's always been there. And we're just like dusting off the cobwebs and then, and then we bloom. <laughs> we bloom. Wow. It's really not that complicated. It's hard. It's the real work. So it's like, it's straightforward. It's not easy. Like, because we're going to brush up against all sorts of things that feel vulnerable when we explore what we really want, what we really think, maybe where we've abandoned ourselves. But as we do it, things just start to click back into place. So that's where the magic comes from. Like when we click and we feel in alignment, we feel powered, empowered naturally, then it feels like magic, but it's not. It's the method of showing up consistently, doing this work on purpose, on the days where it doesn't feel very exciting, when you're just answering a prompt in the boundaries course, or you're just showing up at the class exactly how you are. I, I'm going to go read Rowan White's poem now. Oh, yeah. She's a seed. Um, she's part of the, I think, the Cherokee Nation. And her job is to be the seed tender. So like she seeds, she oversees the seeds, the preservation of seeds. And she's this poet. So she talks about the land, really living on the land and and about indigenous rights and sovereignty is really beautiful. And Well, and I'm assuming you watched the inauguration. Let's get Amanda Gorman on your podcast. Let's get her on your podcast. There's a brave full woman. She just, uh, amazing. Just from her outfit to her, she was standing there. And all I could think about is hear her roar, people. This is a young woman who just knows her stuff. Yeah, I was just... uh, I, I mean, yeah, it wasn't a dry eye in my house yesterday at all. And, and, you know, in thinking about Kamala Harris, the fact that, you know, first female vice president, the boundaries that she is breaking for every woman, no matter how old you are, what you do is just earth shattering as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. So, and I, I kept thinking, what did she do? What does she have that gave her the confidence to go to try to be vice president, you know? Right, right. And, you know, even a little bit as I learned more about her, that her mother instilled that in her. It was passed from the women in her family. Right. I think there's something. And for her, you know, in her, when she took their, um, their acceptance speech the first time, she said, I might be the first, but I'm not the last. Like there it was, right? Like right. this is a woman who knows how to be part of the continuum of humanity, of 
these are the women that taught me here I am in the middle of the bridge and I'm prepared to pass the torch. Yesterday was just this release of crap. I just felt as if the next generation of girls won't have to explain themselves as they climb up the ladder or whatever they choose to do, sideways, up, down, whatever. Right. But they won't have to explain themselves. Yeah, they can just go after it because they'll be considered based upon their qualifications, all of their qualifications, which is so much more powerful than being qualified based upon your experience. Because, you know, I think women bring so much more to the table than just their experience. I think women want, you know, kind of what you're saying, women want to bring their whole selves to the process. Right. And I think society limits them because it's deemed you're either a bitch, you're either too emotional, something's lacking. Right. Yeah, that's, I truly believe that that door is slowly closing, not quite there, but I hope it gets there. And the clippity-cloppity of heels just keeps going down the hallway. Yeah, well, and you're part of that, right? Like your podcast is part of that. Like that's part of it. Like there we are, like walking the talk. You're doing it. Yeah, well, you know, it's funny. So I, I left corporate America and, you know, part of the reason I left was, you know, how do you create an environment where you can bring your whole self? And I think there's so much talk about being empathetic because of the fact we're in a pandemic. And, you know, I talked to a woman who said, why can't we just be a human? Why do we only have to focus on being empathetic? What if we were completely human? How would that make the environment even better? And then I thought, you know, based upon the fact that everybody's talking about work-life balance, how does being human allow you to have a better work-life balance? And also, like, I question fundamentally the concept of work-life balance. I don't think it's a real thing. And I think that's why it's so elusive. Like, this is why there's so many self-help books on it, because it's so freaking hard to land on. I'm operating my premise that there's no thing it's work-life balance because we are whole beings. And there is no such thing as work me and not work me. Like, we are all of it. You are the friend, you're the sister, you're the boss, you're the podcaster, you're the volunteer. Like, you're all of it. And when we, to your point, treat ourselves as whole beings, human beings, and we're no longer fragmenting our energy. Mm. And thus, it's all true. You know, there's a great new book that just came out. It's on back order. It's so hard to get a copy, but it's called Being Human at Work or Human at Work. And it's all these case studies of all these companies that are treating their employees like real humans and watching what happens. And it's really powerful. You're on to something big there. And there's and this is the future. This is what we're watching happen across the board in corporate, those who are doing well anyway, right? Those who are who are stepping into this creativity age know that you have to be human in order to be creative. The checking into the factory mentality and doing one specific task worked for the industrial revolution. We had to train people to turn off their creativity and train off their physical bodies needs in order to do those repetitive tasks. But we don't need as much of that now. And so we've got to open this door to wholeness if we want to have creative people who can problem solve again, who can come up with solutions again, who can work together, who aren't fragmented. How do you think we do that? It's just being honest about, yeah, I'm running my business and... My grandma just got COVID, so I'm grieving. Like these two things are happening at the same time. And we're actually capable as adults of feeling more than one thing at once. We don't have to like shut one off and turn the other one on. We're not robots. That doesn't work without some type of dysfunction anyway, right? So I I think it begins from this idea of giving each other permission 
to be who we actually are. And also, you know, you know, in social work, they talk about, Brene Brown does a lot of good research about the four types of power. Yeah. Right. So there's like the power over mentality, which is a very historically testosterone based way of like, like, there's one top dog and the goal is to have power over. And one of the methods of accumulating power is teaching the idea that vulnerability is weakness, right? And thus we can dominate somebody who's vulnerable. And it comes from this like mindset that power is scarce, that it's finite. So we have to hoard it and grab it and hold on to it for else, right? So that's the model we've had for a long time. But then the other three types of power are power to, I should say. So like giving power to somebody else, power within ourselves and power for. How do I create power for somebody else? And those three types, the two, the with, and the four, are all based on the idea that power is abundant and that the more powerful we all are, the more powerful we all are. Yes. Um, and so I think that's a big part of it is that in those other three models of power, two, with, and, and four, there's an understanding that vulnerability is not a weakness. That's our shared commonality. That's our strength. And so as we allow space for vulnerability and more honest talk about what it's like to be a human being while trying to make some progress in the world, I think that's where we give ourselves like the permission to reconnect to each other and ourselves. Yeah, I'm, I'm big into giving permission slips, you know, writing our own permission slips to be who we need to be at that present moment, because I think it changes from moment to moment, day to day. And I think we have to we have to give ourselves permission um, to step out of the role in which society has given us to say, I don't want to be power over you. Right. That should not determine my value to this company. I want to have power, like you said, two, with, and four. That's where I think we collectively come together and we're, we're of much better use than we are having the power over. You're right on, like you are, like, the podcast you're bringing to the world is just so timely. I mean, it's just so right on time. Like this is the conversation that we're hungry for. You know, the thing that got me about the whole empathy and I thought, you know, is it taking a pandemic for us to, to be soft to our fellow man? And I, I just was so frustrated. I thought if I, it used to be the word transparent. Oh, we got to be transparent. Okay. We're transparent. And then it was, we got to be empathetic. We got to meet our customer, our clients, whatever. And, where they are. Right. And I thought, why is it taking a global pandemic to get us there? If there's one positive thing about that, that that would be it, is that there is the fact that we are seeing our fellow man in a different light. But now we just have to go from seeing being empathetic towards them to being human towards them. I think empathetic sometimes also says, I'm sorry, you're weak. Right. Versus saying you're human and you're going through a tough time. I am too. Where can we meet in the middle? What can our joint center be? How do we create a joint center between all of us? Exactly. That's the conversation I want to see more of in the world. Like the we're in this, we're in this together. It's messy. It's hard. It's weird. Right. We're in this together. Yeah. How do you create a joint center though? Take my center, your center and come up into a common center. That's a lot of center. You know, I have a hunch. I have a theory. Okay. I think we're asking too much of ourselves to be kind to our fellow people sometimes. I, I don't think we're, we're all there yet. I think we start with kindness to self, like real compassion, not letting ourselves off the hook, not like phoning it in and giving ourselves a hall pass to behave however we want. But I mean, like the real compassion of I'm struggling with this thing. 
and that's okay, right? Like I think we go to our center and then then we're able to connect with other people's center, right? Like when we're feeling closer to what's true for us, we've got more to offer. It's that whole put your oxygen mask on. But I think with the caveat, and as a white woman, I want to be really, really clear that this is a both scenario. Like I'm watching my industry really like lean deep into this idea of oh, things are hard. Then you need to just like go isolate and meditate more and get your Airbnb and do your juice fast. And like, that'll heal the world. Like, okay. So like self-care is really important, but I do think it's a time for community care. I think we've gotten a little hyper vigilant about the self-care piece without also bringing in the idea of community care. So it's like both, right? I tend to my center and I tend to the well-being of my community. They both matter. Totally agree. And, and, and I, think, I think we need to raise this next generation to be part of a community and giving back to their community. But I do agree with you. It does start. You have to love yourself a little bit in order to give back. But to your point, I think that the pandemic has also kind of led us to be somewhat inward more, which can be good and bad. How do I not become an extremist in either direction? How do I not go so deep into the self-help book that it's all me, me, me all the time and I don't relate to anybody and, and I abandon my community? But also, how do I not become so selfless that I'm also abandoning myself, right? You know, there's a concept in the field of positive psychology, Tal Ben-Shahar and a woman named Maria Sirwa came up with this concept of um, self-full. And so they talk about this spectrum of self-care and how on one end of the spectrum, there's being selfish, which obviously not the goal, right? The other end of the spectrum is being selfless, where we give it all away, which I'm candid, Amy. I find selfless women exhausting to be around. They're always tired. They're always run down. Like there's always things they're not getting to. They're always late to the meeting. It's like, that's not like, so that's not the goal either, right? But in the, in the middle, they coined this phrase being self-full, this idea that we would tend to our own well-being so that we can show up with a full cup for other people. So there's like another central idea of like, so how do I not be selfish? How do I not be selfless? Like, where's the center where my enrichment is included? When I say I want good for humanity, I include myself in that equation. Is that in the dictionary? I'm not sure it is. It should be if it's not. If you Google that, I, it'll definitely come up like under, because Tal Ben-Shahar is a real thought leader. He's got some great books. I bet it'll come up like you'll see. I don't think it's in the dictionary, but I'm working to get it there. It should be. That's the concept where it's like, oh. And I think that's the concept where women get over the guilt of taking care of themselves too. It's like, oh, right. Yeah. When I'm rested, I do make better decisions for my family. Or when I've, when I've had a lunch, I might get my work done faster as opposed to working through on an empty stomach, right? Like that they're connected. Well, I just, I love that word. I'm gonna, I'm gonna get that and frame that and put it in my kitchen. And we can check the source because I believe there was, I know it was Tal Ben-Jahar and Marie Sirwa. And I think there was one other woman who was involved, another psychologist who was involved in that research and the pointing of the phrase. And I can't remember her name. So we should check and make sure I'm not missing anybody. Well, and, and I love your comment about how selfless women are exhausting Ugh. because it's, it's that theory of I got to check all these boxes because if I am not checking, making my to-do list and checking off all the boxes, then I I'm, must not be living up to my full potential. So give me the box to check, even though it may not be serving me, but I at least can say to myself, I checked off 15 things today. So therefore I am worthy of going to bed a happy woman because this is what I did. 
There it is, right? They, like there's that full circle of like, it's the validation thing. Right. They're still looking for this external validation. I am worthy of existing on the planet because I've emptied my email inbox or because I took my kids to soccer and ballet or because I I landed that presentation or whatever the thing is, right? And And it's never ending. And that's never ending. It's exhausting. You know, the other thing that I've learned in the last couple of months is that, you know, living a, a life where you're just checking boxes can't be fulfilling. And do we just start making up boxes to check in order to fulfill our lives? Or order to avoid what needs tending to. Ooh. And I'll take accountability for that. And, and like, that's my go-to. But also for a lot of the high achieving women that I work with, you know, we say that we don't mind hard work, but I call a little bit of BS on that because the hard work for us, it's actually not hard for us to put in long hours or to show up for meetings. Like we, we enjoy that. That's our comfort zone. The hard work is slowing down and sitting with the tender stuff. And so for a lot of us, it's the, like, that's my first red flag. When a woman tells me how incredibly busy she is all the time, not that we don't have weeks, months, special moments where that's just the way it is, right? But when somebody's chronically busy all the time, my first moment is, what is so painful that we haven't been able to stop and look at it? Wow. What's going on? Um, and I know this came up for me with one of my clients and all for confidentiality, I'll keep it quiet, but she, she is one of those like, on paper, her life looks amazing. Everybody's in awe. She runs this company of how much she can get done. And one day she just leveled with me. And she's like, Carly, I'm going to be honest. I got my business off the ground because I was in a loveless marriage and I hated my husband and I never wanted to be home with him. So I was in the office doing the most because that felt better than being home. And when I heard that story, it made me think, ooh, like, where am I doing that? Like, where am I checking boxes? Because that's actually, while dysfunctional, comfortable, it's my norm. Where is it so hard for me to look at where I don't have it together, that I'm making reasons to be busy? Unconsciously, right? Like, not on purpose. Unconsciously. Wow. I love that. Comfortable dysfunction. Oh, yeah. High achievers, we're really comfortable in the selfless or the do the most place even though it's not serving us, right? Well, and I'm sitting here in my head saying, hmm, where am I in that? And I can think of, you know, I'll do every, anything I can over here to not have to do something over here. So glad you and I can talk about, like, so this is it. Like, this is you and I talking authentically and vulnerably about like, ooh, right? Like, where am I doing this? Like, how does this, how does this show up for me? And then also, I think it helps me when I'm watching people my clients who in the very beginning might show up exhausted, stressed out, overwhelmed, have a little bit more compassion and, and sense of relatability of like, oh God, I know that feeling of being terrified of having to acknowledge something that may or may not be related to work or relationship. It might be something decades old, who knows? Right. But where am I keeping myself busy so as not to do the real work? Yeah. God. So is there anything in this world that scares you? Oh, I'm scared all the time. I'm scared like 27 times a day. Don't if I give off the impression that I have it together. Let me just like let me just make this clear. My my podcast is called Messy and Magnificent on purpose because I'm yeah I'm all the things, Amy. But you know when I get the most scared for me, I get the most scared when I I'm more introvert by nature when I don't have alone time. So I forget everything we just talked about. I get caught up in a normal day to day and I forget it too sometimes. Right. With practice, I come back to it faster because I have sensation of being off-center. I'm more fine-tuned to that. Like I notice it a little quicker than I might have 10 years ago or 20 years ago. 
But if I fill my schedule with too many things, I will forget the truth of who I am. I will forget what I care about. And I will start to go down the rabbit hole of thinking I need to be doing more, that I have to check my email before I get out of bed. Like I will fall into that pattern of belief the moment I put too much in my calendar. Yeah. God. And you know, so if women come to you, can you help them find their truth? Oh yeah. That's what we do. Like that. And so, so here's the funny thing. So let's, let me be really, let's be really transparent. So I started my coaching practice 15 years ago. I had a really hard time getting women to hire me. They didn't want to hire me. They'd love to come to a consult and I couldn't figure out why. Cause I was coming to it from this lens of like, let's reconnect you for your values. Let's make sure your body's getting what it needs. And like that all sounded nice. They liked the idea, but they weren't signing up. And, and I thought, okay, it's like, what's missing? And I realized that nobody cares about health and well-being or coaching as much as a health and well-being coach or else they would be doing it for a living, right? Like nobody actually cared about my modality. They have a different interest, right? Like, and I realized like women were really career driven. They really care about their careers. And if I could help them connect the dots between their well-being and their career, then they would show up for it because they were, you know, like they're used to investing in their career. And so like the big program we run is called Reclaiming. It's a Reclaiming Time Studio. And that's where we teach women how to reclaim their time. And the premise, like day one, we just start to clarify what you value and what gives you life. Wow. All the other decisions are so much easier once we do that. That's like, that's the core of all of it is what gives me life uniquely. Once we figure out what that is, then your energy comes back because we're making sure what you get, what gives you life is in every day. And we start to crowd out what doesn't give you life. So we don't have to avoid it. We don't have to not schedule what's fucking you dry. We just fill the day with what gives you life. And then we've got the energy to do all the other stuff too. What if your job doesn't give you life? <laughs> what a great question, right? So like, and that's, and that's the beauty of it. And I want to point this out because I would have, once upon a time, 15 years ago, I would have said, well, then you got to get another job. Right. And like, you don't need to quit. I'm not the Tony Robbins coach. It's like, quit your job and start over. Like, that's not my mojo, right? But it's like, but I would have said, maybe we would hatch a plan. Okay. Give you a soft way, right? But there's this other part of me that as I study the way people work in other countries, like I've been in cabs in other countries and I'll say, oh, you know, what do you do during your days? What do you do for a living? And the cab driver will be like, oh, I'm a musician. I love to play the guitar. Driving the cab is just what they do to make money. And that's like, hey, okay. That's what funds their ability to go play the guitar, right? So I do think that there's something crushing we inadvertently do. So the question I ask myself is, where am I asking my career for more than is reasonable? Where am I asking my career to like make me feel worthy, to like comfort me at night when I'm scared, to make me money, to give me friends, like to give me a, a, a way to travel? Like, no wonder my career is exhausting. Like I'm asking it for everything. That's too much, right? So again, it's like, where am I burdening my career with the fact that I don't have a life, right? Wow. That's almost not fair to the career. I think that's a beautiful way to look at it. Like if you think, I do, I think about like, this is woo-woo, but like I think about the career as being its own entity. If you pile that much pressure on your, your spouse, your partner, your whatever, they crumble and shrivel up and it would be too much. Right. So why, why would we do it to our career? Right. Well, and I think about, you know, I think about the times when newly married and, you know, my husband climbing the corporate ladder and I'm thinking he is, he should be the president, you know? And so as a spouse, not only is he pushing himself to make his career 
be everything. I'm giving him that pressure on top of that. That's, that's just a moment. And, and you know what? I think I have felt that throughout my, you know, we've been married for 30 years. I think I have felt that on and off. And wow, I need to go apologize to him. <laughs> <laughs> like, and let's extend that to ourselves. Like there's a moment of kindness to self. Like, where have I done this to myself by accident, right? Like letting ourselves off the hook. Like, where have I been putting so much pressure on myself to nail my career? And really, Amy Poehler in her book, Yes, Please, she talks about, what did she say? She's like, career is like a bad boyfriend. Like, he's, it's always looking for the next best thing, you know? Like, sometimes it shows up, sometimes it doesn't. It's like, it'll bring you gifts, you know, and then it won't. Like, you can't depend on it, you know? Like, and if, so if you're asking too much of it, you know, like, just making note, right? That's a moment. And think how many young people are doing that just right now. Right now. Um, yeah. My son is... 23 and he got a job right out of college um, in May, but pandemic. So he's never been in an office before, but he still feels the pressure to even more pressure because you feel like they don't know you personally because you're not hanging around the water cooler. You're not, you know, so you almost have to go further to make sure you get recognized for what you're doing. Right. There's something really interesting with, with this generation I only have a handful of 20 year olds in my practice, you know, like I've worked with maybe, let's say I've worked with 50, 20 year olds, you know, in my practice, most of my folks, they have to hit the wall. Like you can push and you can hustle in your 20s and get away with it. And then when popping an aspirin for your migraines doesn't work, like that's when, that's when people come see me. You know, it's like, so you got to use like at least your 30s. But it's interesting that the folks that I do have in my practice who are in their 20s right now, I've been floored by the number one fear I hear from them is, am I doing this right? Mm-hmm. Like they're, terrified that they're not doing something and that, and that there is a right, like there's, so there's a misconception that there's a right way to enter your career and to rock it right out of the park. And they're terrified if they're doing it right or not. Um, even just for me, you know, I'm in my late thirties, so I'm not that old. Right. But it's like, even just for me, I still felt like in my twenties that I had permission to like try on a bunch of jobs and like figure it out. I didn't feel like I had to have the right, I knew I needed a job, <laughs> but it didn't have to be the job. You know, I was like, I'm going to figure this out as I go. And, and, and with the high achievers in their twenties, there's some type of pressure that's intense about needing to have it right. And I wonder if it comes back to what you're saying, like the, am I going to be worthy enough? Are they going to keep me here? If I don't like knock them out of the park via zoom, oh my gosh, for your son, like via zoom, I have to impress these people. <laughs> Come on. Yeah. That's very interesting. Am I doing this right? I can almost relay that back to my son, even my my daughter, who's 27, who she's been doing online work her whole life. She's never really been in an office. You know, so for her, her gener- they've grown up with that. Right. So you wonder how does technology help or hurt people as we go through this? That's another, that's another topic for another day. So yeah. Oh my God, this has been so much fun. This has been the like just the most natural conversation. I'm loving this. If all my interviews and like conversations could be like this, Amy, you could teach this method. That'd be great to the world. Yeah, you know, I, and I, I don't know what it is. I think um, I'm naturally intrigued by by people, especially women who are going out there and just getting it done. Who was your mentor? Who who did you shadow that allowed you to take this route? A million people. And I still am, right? Like I want to be really... So if there's only one takeaway that I could put out there, I am not a self-made woman. 
And I'm okay with that. You know, a lot of my clients are, um, and for a long time, the business model was such that they would be like, I'd have one high profile client at a time. I'd be their living coach. And I remember being on the stage in a stadium with one of my clients. They're in front of an audience of 60,000 people. And they're talking about how they're a self-made man. And I'm standing on the side of the stage with an entourage of 15 people, right? And like four semi-truck sizes of, of equipment and people who are coming and setting up the stage. And they've just got their publicist in LA and their financial planner in Miami. And they've got all this stuff. And I'm like, how dare you come on the stage and call yourself self-made? Like, yes, you do the hard work. But we got to like dispel this myth of what Tom Stedding calls the solo hero. Mm. It's so isolating. Like the idea that I have to figure this all out myself. And maybe that's what's happening to some of the younger folks. But I think we've modeled it for them. Oh, I agree. Yeah, that. You've got to figure it out yourself or else, right? Yep. I yep. learn a lot from the folks who have, they've got dirt under their fingernails. They're a little gritty. They're connected to the earth. So the poets, right? Rowan White, Susie Banks Baum, who was an artist and a writing teacher, uh, Maria Serwa, another great teacher for me. I want to talk to the people who are passionate about resilience, mm. that are passionate about finding center. Uh, Michaela Abrams, who's the former CEO of Dwell Magazine, she practices the art of humble leadership oh. in the most authentic way. She'd be a great person to get on your podcast too. These are some of the people that I like. I want to talk to the people who are not trying to be anybody's guru. Like I had a guru. I was waving the yoga ashram. Like been there, done that. Like I want. I want to talk to the people who are willing to share their mistakes Ooh. alongside their wins. Well, you know, it's it's the mistakes that make us better. And I I don't think I learned that till I was older because at first you're afraid of your mistakes. You think your mistakes define you when in the end, they're the ones that make you. So yeah, so for me, mistakes are what have made me stronger and that's okay. I mean, you get by. And again, it goes back to at what point did I decide I don't care what you think of me? <laughs> I don't Here care. I am. Yeah. <laughs> A friend, a mentor who went to see the Dalai Lama speak years ago, and, and she's a big you know, fan of the Dalai Lama, and she's there in this big auditorium, and somebody forgot, one of the Dalai Lama's assistants forgot something that he needed, and he snapped on stage at one of his monks, and it like raised his voice and snapped, and there's like this hush falls upon the audience, everyone's like, wait, what's happening? And the Dalai Lama, like, he, he, get, he snaps out of it, like, he, look, he realizes where he is, and looks around the room, and then he laughs, and he's like, did you guys think I have it all together? Wow. Did you think I was perfect? And I just love, like, there's the model of like, yeah, I just pulled a jerk move. Right. I'm human, like happens sometimes. Like that wasn't great what I just did. But did you think if the Dalai Lama can forgive himself and be messy, there's so much more space for all of us. Oh. <laughs> Sign me up for that one. I'm just going to say, well, the Dalai Lama did that. <laughs> yeah. Like I just have more in common with, I snapped. I've got more in common with the Dalai exactly. Lama. Like, what? Well, the, the Dalai Lama's brother lives in Bloomington, Indiana. I didn't know that. Yeah. So when I was in college, he used to come to Bloomington or to IU um, at least once a year, maybe. Yeah. He'd come and see his brother. Wow. I know. That's magnificent. That yeah. is so cool. If only I would have been more in tune with myself back then, I probably would have seen him. <laughs> right. 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 <laughs> <laughs> didn't quite get there. Yeah, we're here now. We're, we're figuring it out now anyway, right? We're, exactly. We're in the process. Exactly. Oh my God. So, well, thank you for this conversation. This has been so much fun. I love it. 
How about life-giving? You're life-giving, Amy. What can I do to support your work? How can I champion this in the world? What can I do? Well, I'm just starting out. I feel like I'm trying to work on my website. I'm trying to do all this stuff. And I've been in technology for 25 years, but I've, I've always had an assistant. And I'm like, I'm the assistant. <laughs> so, yeah, so for me, it's about, I, I want to get, I want to talk to people that live a brave full life, that are willing to share the life that, that they're living. And, and kind of what you said, what do, have they done to get where they are? Because nobody gets there by magic. Nobody waves right. a wand and we, we end up in this wonderful spot. We all had to, to work. We had to use grit and grime and, and, and to get there. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm working on creating my, you know, wonderful guest list as to what, what would perfection look like. So when I get that done, I'll share it with you and see. Yeah. Let me know. And, and if there's anybody I can send your way, I mean, most of the people we referenced today, I could give you an introduction to, or if there's anybody else. Oh, that would be great. But that, that's a longstanding statement. Like, you know, I don't need to know today, but like send me a random email with what you need. I'm here. Like, <laughs> Perfect. Thanks, Carly. I really appreciate it. I'm so glad we've met. Let's do something else together. More of this. Yeah. Oh, I'd love to. Yeah. I, you know, my mother-in-law, she used to refer to herself as mother-in-love. She never, she always thought mother-in-law was a negative connotation. And she just was, a, she had created a center called the Center of Unlimited Possibilities, where she would bring like-minded women together to um, just to kind of talk. And she unfortunately passed away um, in an automobile accident a couple of years ago. And she never got to realize this dream of, you know, bringing women together and supporting women and, you know, being authentic. And so I feel like there are moments I'm channeling her in this conversation. Yeah. Something will come out of my mouth. I'm like, where the hell did that come from? <laughs> Your mother in love. Oh my gosh. That's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. And I've got two sister in loves. So again, we don't go, we, she never used the phrase in law ever. Oh, I love that. I've never heard that before. That's brilliant. That's beautiful. So that's why I, I want to just bring loving conversations to the world so people can just be more authentic and be more brave Yeah, and, and take the risk. Because this is a risk. This is one of the biggest risks I've ever taken. So yeah, I'm excited. I can't believe that this is the beginning for you. Like this is clearly so naturally where you're meant to be. If this is what the beginning looks like, like this is so clearly, I mean, you appear to be from an outsider looking in, in your zone of genius, as if you've been doing this for 20 years. Like I would have, I wouldn't have bat an eye if you had told me that you've been doing this for a long, for a long time. Oh, thanks. Well, next time I'll lie. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much. This has been fabulous. And I will absolutely stay in touch. Please do. Please do. And let me know how I can support you. And whenever this comes out, if you let us know, we'll put it on all of our platforms and we'll share it. Because our audience, it's all women. Like I know. They would so quickly hop over to you and soak up everything you're doing. Have you ever worked with men before? Yeah. I mean, at any given moment, maybe 20% of my practice is men. And there were times where my practice was exclusively men, just specifically when I would have one client at a time. Yeah. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Amy. Enjoy. This was a highlight of my day. I hope, I hope all this good that you're doing in the world comes back to you. This is good stuff. Thank you. I really appreciate it. We'll be in touch. Sounds good. Bye for now. All right. Bye. Thank you for joining me today. 
I don't know about you, but I sure am grateful for the opportunity to listen and learn from such great women. So if you enjoyed yourself as much as I did, please feel free to share Braveful podcast with your friends and colleagues, as well as please subscribe to Braveful on your favorite podcast apps. Have the best day ever. And until next time, be Braveful. <laughs>